Praise the Lord and good morning to everyone. If we could all stand and give God praise. He is risen. He is risen. Let's celebrate a living, living king. He is risen. He is risen. I don't know about you, but I needed a risen Savior. I am thankful that our Savior is not dead. My God is not dead. I don't just stare at a tombstone and read an epitaph that means that this is the end. But if there is anything to be written on the tombstone, first of all, the tomb would be empty. And anything that could be inscribed on it would say, death, where is your sting? We know that Jesus is alive. We are celebrating that this morning. And I am just so thankful that we are not, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, to be pitied. We're not those who are most miserable. Or Mowgli is not to be miserable. If he had no hope that was alive, he would have nothing to celebrate, nothing to trust in, nothing to hope in. But in spite of his persecutions, he serves a risen Savior. And that his hope extends beyond the present circumstances he endures. And our Jesus, our Savior, did not cheat death. He took death on and he beat that thing. He wrestled with death and he won. He conquered so that we could become not just conquerors, but we are more than conquerors in Christ who loves us. So I'm sorry I just had to get that out. (laughs) That is my authentic praise because I am thankful that he rose with all power in his hands. We're going to continue in Hebrews chapter 2. Just two verses this morning. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Starting with verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is alive, working currently in our hearts and our minds. And I ask, Lord, that your spirit would open up our eyes and our hearts to what you would have us to hear this morning, Lord. That we would see that this is worth a life given a life surrendered, a life sacrificed, that this is everything that we can hope and trust in. Pray, God, that you grant us your joy, the fullness of your joy, as we reflect on the truth of your word. As always, Lord, I ask that you would hide me behind the cross, that you'd humble me at prospect of expounding from the truth of Scripture, that you'd bring eternity into bear with us this morning, that Jesus would be glorified. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. We're here on Resurrection Sunday, continuing our study in the book of Hebrews. And I thought it'd be, it'd be good for us to revisit this audience, the audience that this writer is addressing in this, this book that we're trying to work through. This could be a worried, discouraged little church 
full of Jewish Christians who steeped in their traditions and they have an understanding of what it means to be religious, but they're encountering hardship, hostility, persecution. And yet they get this letter where they're, they're reading about explicit references to the Son of God. So just as a recap, some of the things that we've, we've covered already beginning with chapter 1. He is the preeminent heir of all creation. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He is the creator and sustainer of the universe. He is superior to angels in authority, power, and glory. That's chapter 1. And then we take a sharp turn into chapter 2 where there's a warning to pay closer attention to what you've heard. Do not drift away from it. You find that he's the testament to the law, the prophecy of the prophets. And that we were able, the witnesses were able to view signs and wonders as they were carried about by the Holy Spirit. These witnesses proclaimed what they saw and heard. We continue in chapter 2 and see that he became lower than the angels. He became a human being to identify with mankind, to make his dwelling among us, to be known by us, allow himself to be known. In the midst of that truth, we find again in verse 12, 2 verse 12, that he becomes the authoritative quintessential worship leader, singing God's praises in the midst of of the congregation, trusting in him perfectly. He is the fitting founder of our salvation in that he suffered for us, dying to free us from the sting of death, claiming victory over the grave, revealing the grace of God towards us. So what does this group of Jewish Christians conclude from all of this? All this that has been shared to them is glorious, rich truth. Well, again... They're steeped in their traditions. They understand something of God. So to hear explicit reference to the Son of God, who he is, what he has done, is a part of the gospel message that they they first heard in order to become believers, in, in order to become established as a church. The concept that we'll be able to explore today in these final two verses, something that they have an intimate familiarity with. We are introduced to the office of the high priest today, central component of Jewish tradition. They've got rich historical context for the high priest and what the high priest does, what, who the high priest is, what that means for them as people. The office of the high priest existed to point to God's holiness and to man's need. And everything learned from Jewish tradition, this audience would know that the significance of the high priest was that of the highest esteemed servant of God. So after reading all this, up to this point, we may conclude, and I I guess I would contend that this may have begun to click for the readers upon reading this entire presentation of the Son of God. Preeminent glory, coming to earth, high priest. It may begin to click what is is being communicated, what they are to take away from this letter. 
The concept was alive. The concept of the high priest was alive in tradition. But what this message, this letter seems to be communicating is far greater than what their traditions tell them about the high priest. Verse 17 begins and says, He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Again, this identification with his people produced a reality of humanity that we've explored a little bit. And and it's worth, again, emphasizing Christ became human. It's hard to walk those waters still seeing him as God, Jesus Christ, walking the earth, 100% man, 100% God. We see the baby, the baby Christ. And we rightfully say this is the sustainer of the universe. This is Jesus, the same God who is powerful beyond measure. But he's a baby. So in his humanity, he literally had to age to mature in mind and physical stature. He didn't come out the womb preaching, prepare ye the way of the Lord. He cooed and he cried and he, he was an actual infant. Throughout life, he, he gained brain function and he was able to hold things. He began to learn how to walk. He was taught maybe a measure of the alphabet or whatever their tradition was from a very young age. He learned. He learned as a human being. Becoming like us, all of us who are human beings on this earth. He matured. He learned what to do in proper settings and what not to do in proper settings. This all informs what tradition spoke to this group of Christians about. This informs them about the very God that has been proclaimed to them. Translates to his ability Christ's ability to become a merciful and faithful high priest. Now, what I, what I want to, to emphasize in that is something that's been implicit through first, I guess I could say the first and second chapter. Implicit in these verses is the fact that we're talking about a living God. We're talking about Jesus alive. Jesus is this. Jesus is not. This isn't past tense. He did this or he was this. He is this. This is a present reality. So even in talking about his suffering unto death, we're talking implicitly about the reality that he has been raised. The resurrection is in play here. But in this office of the high priest, I think it's, it's more explicit than ever before in that we communicate that he's alive. But in the office of the high priest, we're communicating what he is actually doing, what this office means for the living Christ. What is his function? What, what does he live to do? He lives to occupy an office for the living. I'm not talking about a high priest in the present tense as if we're talking in memory of Christ. 
He's the living mediator, the living advocate. Christ lives so that God is both just and the justifier. Verse 2. Earlier in chapter 1 says he made purification for sin. In his living office, he is actively merciful and faithful. Let's start with merciful. First, acknowledging that we need mercy, which is not something that we often acknowledge or something that we often celebrate. It's the fact that we need God's mercy. We need him to be merciful to us. Now, something interesting about mercy mercy is that it's, by definition, not something that you deserve. You can't demand mercy from someone. But Christ walks in this reality and extends this towards us as the high priest. In him being merciful, we understand that becomes like his brothers in order to identify with the need. Identifying with the need allows him to meet the need perfectly. He becomes man to fully apply compassion in the most complete sense. Extending mercy to us is not a, you know, this is a blind act or something that he thinks that we need because he is God and we are man. Even though he is other than us, he applies a mercy that he sees fit for us. That is true. That's right. That's good. That's honorable. But there's a step further being communicated here. That he knows exactly and can speak authoritatively to what we actually need. The need is clear to him. The need is something that he is embodying. The need is extended to us in ways that we can ask for, we should ask for, and then ways that we may be too ashamed to ask for. May may be too ashamed to admit that we are in need of a mercy like this. Jesus knows how we feel. Becoming human to apply perfect mercy, maybe it begs the question, what type of mercy do you need? That kind of introspection, what kind of mercy did I need? What kind of mercy do I need? Jesus is able to answer that question better than anybody else. Jesus became you. He became me. He became us. Just, not just to get to know us, but to apply the type of mercy that was fitting, that was perfect for us. He is merciful. Secondly, he is faithful. And that means It could mean a number of different things, but I'm just going to focus on on two main points that we can extract from the fact that he is faithful. Faithful in that, number one, he obeys God perfectly. He honored God in every precept. He kept every law, not just kept the law, but he kept the law perfectly in its intention. 
So it wasn't just this display of look what I can do and look how right I did it. But let me explain to you why the law was written. Let me give you a sense of applying the law in such a perfect fashion that maybe its meaning escaped you. I'll model what you should actually see in its intention. Not just dropping a rule book in your lap, but embodying the fulfillment of the law. He was faithful in that he gave his father all the glory, always. Always. His mind was towards his father. His actions were towards his father. His desire was toward his father. He was faithful. Faithful to the point of death. He drank the cup. He finished the mission. The cup was before him. And in his humanity, he wrestled with the cup. He knew what the cup meant. He knew exactly what we needed, but he drank the cup. He didn't shy away from it and say, I I just can't. That would have been the end of all of us. But he drew near to the cup. He held it, trembled in his hands, but he drank the full cup. He was faithful. Philippians 2 and 8 says this in complete form. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's number one. He obeys God perfectly. Number two, he is faithful in his appeal to the Father for us. This isn't, maybe this is beyond our comprehension. I think it is. But there's, there's no stopping to Jesus' appeal for us. It's not like we enter into a good point of humanity where it's just like, oh, they've been doing a good job. I don't need to appeal to the Father anymore. There's a constant sense where the Lord is faithfully, faithfully interceding for us. There's no rest for the mediator. The mediator is constantly before the Father. There's a faithfulness to where there's no fatigue, there's no, there's no just indifference or an irritation or a moment where he just draws back and says, I'm, I'm done with these people. There is a faithfulness to his intercession. He continues to appeal to the Father. His appeal is informed by his perfect mercy doesn't hesitate to call out to the Father on our behalf, individually, personally. His blood was enough. And the Most High hears this blood that was poured out, hears this blood, and it speaks a better word than any accuser. The blood shed speaks a better word than any accuser could ever lay before the Father. Romans 8.34 asks the question, who is he that condemns? Who is the person that condemns? Christ died, but not just that. More than that, he was raised. What is he doing in his resurrection? He's at the right hand, God making intercession for us. He's faithful. 
Jeremiah had a sense of this, the prophet who prophesied the word from way back then in the Old Testament in the book of Lamentations, which is a really interesting book because if you, if you read it just kind of in a vacuum, you say, this is just a book of complaining. He's constantly in anguish. He's, he's never satisfied. This looks bad for this guy, and he's a prophet? But it's very interesting how he marries the merciful and the faithful in a very brief exhortation found in Lamentation three twenty-two. 23, the verse right before says, this I recall to my mind, this I remember, therefore I have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. It's because his compassions do not fail. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Mercy and faithfulness. Jeremiah calls that out from the echoes of past, but we find in Christ the mediator, the high priest, the fulfillment of such prophecy. Verse 17 continues, he is making propitiation. Propitiation is the right word to use there to get a sense of what Christ has done. And that he has appeased the wrath of God. He did take that cup, and that cup that was poured out was God's wrath, his righteous wrath that we all deserved. And the commentator named Leon Morris says that Christ propitiates God's personal wrath, fully meeting it and putting it away. He meets God's wrath, puts it away. We serve a holy God, a holy God. We shouldn't shrink from the terror of his wrath because it beautifies the cross. Don't ever think that humanity and all of our struggles and sinfulness and suffering that we're victims here. We're the perpetrators We are those who are guilty, and God's wrath is due to us. But in Christ, we see grace, we see hope, we see rescue, and that he appeases that wrath with his sacrifice. One of my favorite preachers, Paul Washer, puts it this way. He says, when a man gets saved, he gets saved from God. The justice of God was coming for you. God saved you from himself. God saved you for himself, and God saved you by himself. Verse 18 continues and gives us this picture. He suffered when he, te- when he was tempted. Therefore, he's able to help those who are being tempted. And let me just pause and just say I'm thankful that he helps us. That what Scripture tells us here is true. He helps us. But there's a reason this is profound. There's a reason this is powerful. And this concept that he suffered when he was tempted is something that that bears definition. It's something worth defining. So maybe, maybe it's a little discouraging to just think about how this may not connect with us. In that while he was being tempted, 
He suffered. What was the suffering? The suffering was resisting temptation. And why this may not connect with with some folks is that you may not know what it means to suffer when you're being tempted because you're just given to the temptation. Being tempted should involve, as the believer, in, in the life of the Christian, it should involve suffering. There should be an anguish. There should be something that we're wrestling with because we do not sin. We do not want to sin. There's, there's this, this Romans 7 application where there's a war going on where we are wrestling with sin. And in that suffering, saying no because I love Jesus, saying I'm going to stand back because I love Jesus, holding my tongue because I love Jesus, that's not just met with, oh, okay, I guess I'll just let you be. Scripture says that Satan seeks somebody to devour, roaming to and fro. There is, there is an adamant pursuit for you to fall into sin. If you don't know what it means to suffer, In the midst of temptation, I strongly encourage you to draw nearer to God. Trust in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. You're going to suffer when you're tempted. Here we see Christ suffered when he was tempted. There's the the example that we often think about is when he was lured away into into the desert and he was completely famished. He had hadn't had food, he was tired and feeling the the full effects of his humanity. And then Satan comes in the moment of weakness, seeking to tempt him with some very significant temptations, by the way. How about I just give you all the money that you want? Anybody want to suffer with that temptation? You know you have the power cast yourself off the cliff. You can save yourself. Jesus meets that temptation with the Word of God. Suffering in his moment of intense weakness, still displaying a perfect devotion and faithfulness to God. So again, we we see Jesus and we are in awe of him and we bow and worship to him and we understand that no one could do this but God. But he doesn't just do this to make us feel bad and make us feel distant, but he does this in order to help us when we are tempted. That's what the scripture teaches us is that his suffering in, in that, that translates to his faithfulness, that translates to his mercy, gives us the help that we need. Jesus enduring every temptation that's common to us all. Now, we may want to X some temptations off that list and say, oh, he didn't have to go through that. That's just me. Scripture doesn't doesn't give us any caveats to certain temptations that he was protected from. He endured all temptation faithfully so that we can see ourselves identified with Christ and have a faithful and merciful high priest who is able to help us in any temptation that we encounter. Something that we we may not necessarily default to is 
asking for help. In the moments of temptation, in the moments of our deepest and darkest wrestling with our flesh and the realities of sin in this world, to call out to Christ for help. God, I need your help. I can't endure this in my own strength. I need your strength. Whatever you displayed on earth as the faithful and true Lord of our salvation, the fitting founder of our salvation, I need your help in this temptation. And we can trust that he overcame sin so that we can overcome. This is resurrection power. This is power that he leaves with us. He gives to us to walk in the Spirit. He leaves the Holy Spirit who is also the helper, the one who is able to help us endure. We not only suffer, we overcome. We should remember that he is able when we are not. He is able when we can't go any further. He's able when you can't fight anymore. He is able. And to find that strength is to be drawn closer to Jesus, is to strengthen and build, fortify your faith that we have a great salvation. We can't neglect such a great salvation. Now, we have to understand in thinking about this faithful and merciful high priest, that what's being communicated here is a Savior that's near to us. It's not distant. This Jewish Christian church, these Christians who have been been converted from a religion that depended on their own efforts, where they had confidence in their own abilities and their own human displays of righteousness. They were learning what it meant to be dependent on someone else for righteousness, for peace, for rest. And the writer, the way this is, this is being articulated, the writer rips away any righteousness that these Jewish Christians may have attributed to the law of Moses rips away the righteousness that they may think that they achieve through moral living and turns them towards a weak and trembling dependence upon Christ. Jesus is our help. When you are tempted, meditate on Psalm 121, where it just starts by saying, I lift my eyes to the hills Where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He is risen. He is risen, merciful, faithful, a present help in the time of trouble. Our great high priest is this anchor that helps prevent us from drifting. As chapter 2 begins, it says, don't drift. Consider these things more closely. Now we see the high priest. 
we see revealed here who Christ is, what he is actually doing. This is the anchor to which we hold to that prevents us from drifting away. It draws us near to the throne. We call out for mercy. We call out for help. We realize that he is faithful. His intercession does not cease. It draws us closer. This is the anchor. No matter the inflection of my voice, if that doesn't convince you, then the book will. Because we will get there, but Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20 literally says this. It says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Has become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We will not talk about Melchizedek today, but we'll get there. He's gone behind the curtain making intercession, and this is an anchor for our souls. Our high priest is forever. As we just sang, forever he is glorified, forever he is lifted high. This is our high priest. Anyone or anything claiming to be forever, must be living, must be alive. This is our risen Christ. This is our hope of glory. Our faithful and merciful high priest who is able to help us when we suffer temptation. Let's go today celebrating in whatever way, shape, or fashion, even as we make intercession for those who suffer persecution knowing that their story doesn't end with their suffering and the hostility that they face, knowing that they are resurrected with Christ. Let's be comforted by that. Let's be joyful in that. Christ is risen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for a living hope. We thank you for being our merciful and faithful high priest who knows what we deal with, knows how we feel, knows the frailty of this human body that we walk in. But God, I just thank you that you didn't just leave us with the first man, Adam, but you gave us the second Adam. And that in him, we can have hope. We know the cross was enough, that propitiation was absorbed, that you walked out the tomb with all power in your hands. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to hope in him. Help us to cling more tightly to these things, not let them slip away or us drift from them. Help us to acknowledge that we need this anchor and to draw nearer and nearer, God. As the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. Thank you, Jesus, for all you've done. We thank you that you are risen. In Christ's name, amen.